in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. If you're able, I'd invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 22. This is God's Word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He, Isaac, said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ, the Lamb of God, in this passage. By the power of the Holy Spirit, make us cling to Him as our only hope for salvation, for forgiveness and grace. We ask these things in the name of the Lamb, our Savior Jesus. Amen. Please be seated.
Before we get into the sermon itself this morning, I want to introduce this sermon series to you. Are any of you uh, thread pullers? Thread pullers. You know, when you find that little string sticking out of the hem of your shirt sleeve or maybe your ugly Christmas sweater, and you think, you know, that thread looks like it needs to be pulled. I bet that'll make everything better. (laughs) Mariana always tells me not to, but I admit that's what I do. Well, what happens when you pull the thread? Yeah, I heard it over here. The reason it gets tighter is because the whole point of a thread is to hold all of the rest of the threads together. That thread is going places. It's not just hanging out there waiting for you to pull on it. It's, it's got a job to do. It runs from the hem of your sleeve and up and over and around the entire sweater. And when you pull on it, you're going to see where it goes, where it connects, and why it's there in the first place. If there's anything that I would really love to see all of us become, it's thread pullers when it comes to Scripture. Now, we won't ruin the the Scriptures when we pull on these threads, but we'll see how all of the parts are connected and how all of the parts ultimately point to Jesus. Every thread in Scripture that you pull on ultimately leads you to Jesus. And that's a really exciting thing to do. It's thrilling to look for Jesus in Scripture and realize that that is the whole point. That's the reason the scriptures were given to us. We call this biblical theology. You can call it thread pulling if you want, but it's pulling on these themes and how they lead us to the main point, to Christ and his grace for sinners. Uh, So in this biblical theology thread pulling series for Advent, uh, we're going to be looking at the theme, Behold the Lamb. We're going to have a couple of interruptions in this series. I think that means I'll be preaching from Leviticus on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, But it's good because it's going to take us to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, The way this works out, we'll look at a lamb for a man this morning, Genesis 22. Then a lamb for a family, Exodus 12. A lamb for a nation, Leviticus 16. A lamb for the world in John 1. And then a lamb on the throne in Revelation 5 and 7. Now, I say it's a lamb. You might be thinking, even from our reading this morning, there was no lamb. It was a ram caught in the thicket. Well, someone joked about this whole list that a sacrificial ruminant quadruped wasn't as pithy, right? But we can see this sacrifice for sin, this substitutionary sacrifice in all of these stories. So that's where we're headed in this series. As for this story today, I want to look with you at three layers of the gospel in the story that we read this morning. Uh, It's sort of like peeling back an onion. I don't know if any of you peeled an onion this week and maybe it brought some tears to your eyes. Maybe seeing the gospel layers of this story as we peel them back might bring us some tears of joy as we see what God has provided for us in Christ. So we're going to look at three gospel layers in this story. First, the servant's saving faith. Second, the father's shocking generosity. And third, the sinner's singular need. So the servant's saving faith the Father's shocking generosity, and the sinner's singular need. First layer then, the servant's saving faith. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. That's the start of an incredible story. It's a preview of Abraham's faith. I'm calling this layer uh, the servant's saving faith because Abraham is God's servant. More specifically, he's a covenant servant. Uh, It's something that's been developing over the last few chapters in Genesis. Let me explain what that means, to be a covenant servant. 
Uh, what happened is God has essentially stepped into the politics of Abraham's culture and using terms of ancient agreements between parties that Abraham would understand, he's entered into this agreement, this relationship with Abraham, this covenant with him. God has told Abraham, I will be your covenant king and you will be my covenant servant. Just think for a moment how shocking this would be for Abraham. We tend to think of these Bible stories, you know, as if they were flannel graph stories in Sunday school. Picture yourself in Ur. You're just a pagan guy who lives in Ur of the Chaldees. And then God appears to you unexpectedly, unannounced. Abraham! That makes for a really interesting Tuesday afternoon, don't you think? What is this? Who are you? Well, God enters into a covenant with this dumbfounded dude from Ur. And Abraham has no idea this was coming. He and all of his countrymen were no strangers to this kind of agreement. Um, and even the fact that there was religious realities tied in with these agreements. But this was unlike any covenant king that Abraham had ever experienced. This is God himself entering into a gracious covenant with mankind. This had never happened. It had never happened. God created Adam in a covenant relationship of law. He was in a covenant of works, and he failed. But this is a covenant of gospel. This is a covenant of grace. It would take a lot of time to go into detail about this covenant God made with Abraham. But you have to hear just a little bit more. Because God is doing something no other covenant king that Abraham had ever heard of would do. Usually, a strong king would deliver a people, uh, fight on their behalf, win the battle for them, rescue them, uh, on the same token, somewhat conquering them and demanding their servitude. So the king would uh, oblige this delivered servant nation or individual to fulfill uh, their end of the bargain in exchange for protection. You can kind of see how that might work. I am now the king, you are now the servant. I give you protection, you give me service. And if you fail to obey, there will be punishment. But what's different here about God's covenant with Abraham is that God, unlike any covenant Abraham has ever witnessed, God has taken up both ends of the bargain. He's taken up both ends of the agreement. He says, I'll be the one extending this covenant to you, and I'll be the one keeping this covenant on your behalf. I'll bear the punishment of any disloyalty on myself. That should ring a bell, Christian, because the covenant that Abraham received from God and the covenant we're looking at this morning forms the basis of the covenant that we now experience, the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not a relationship under law, but under gospel. So back to Abraham now, back to this story. This God, the king who has turned Abraham's world inside out on a Tuesday afternoon in Ur, is a king like no other king Abraham had ever seen or known. He's a gracious king. He's a generous king. And we're looking right now at the servant Abraham's saving faith in this king. So far, the promises of this king to Abraham, we haven't read the, the chapters that contain them, but they center on a son, on a son of promise. Abraham and his wife were old, really old, too old to have children. Uh, it would have been supernatural. And God gave them children beyond all expectation through a son that God gave to them. He's going to make a great nation arise out of Abraham and all the earth will be blessed. So that's the background to this test of faith that we're looking at this morning. This promise centers around a son and the test centers around this same son of promise. So Abraham's faith needs to be tested. 
Now, if you know the story of Abraham, you know that his track record uh, really deserves a test. Uh, His track record is not great. There are no straight A's on his report card. It's more of a, the dog ate my report card kind of report card. He's told to leave his father's house, and he takes his uh, brother-in-law Lot, or he takes along his relative Lot. He's facing famine, and rather than trusting God, Abraham flees to Egypt and almost loses his wife to the king of Egypt because of his dishonesty. Doubting that God will make good on his promise of a son, he fathers Ishmael with his wife Sarah's servant Hagar. Not exactly a stellar example of faith in Abraham. So a test is in order. God said, take your only son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine God telling you that? Can you imagine being asked to do this? Maybe you don't have to use much imagination because you know what it's like to walk a path that God has set before you, but it's a path that's dark, no light to be found, and you feel like you're constantly stumbling in the dark, uncertain of what's to come, confused that God would send you down this path in the first place, concerned that maybe God doesn't even have your best interest in mind. Have you ever thought that, following the Lord? Maybe you face what seemed like enormous, even over-the-top requests from God. Give me the only son whom you love. To simplify something the Protestant reformer John Calvin said, we honor God most when we understand him least, yet we entrust ourselves entirely to his providence. So there's a lesson for faith faith in the face of seemingly impossible demands here. Uh, But even at a deeper level than that, there's this important truth here. Uh, We have to grasp the nature of saving faith. Uh, We saw this a lot in the book of James, didn't we? We're saved by faith, but that faith is never alone. It's always producing good works. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 sheds light on this. It says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. When, as one preacher put it, that knife flashed in the eastern sun, ready to be brought down on the son of promise, that was an amazing work of faith. If the knife comes down on my dear beloved son, God will find a way. God will find a way. That was the stamp of authenticity of faith that led the angel of the Lord to declare, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is what we need to take from this today. If your faith can't lift the knife against all that you hold dear, so to speak, if you can't follow God down the dark road, then it's a dead faith. If you can't count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ as Lord, uh, for the surpassing wealth, Paul says, of knowing Jesus, what kind of faith is that? What kind of faith do you have? It's a lonely faith, and a lonely faith cannot save you. Good works prove the genuineness of our faith. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. 
So you need to ask yourself, we all need to ask ourselves, is my faith just a faith that's faking it? Giving lip service to the idea of believing in the promises of God and trusting in the providence of God? Or is it a faith that can lift the knife and trust God even when it doesn't make sense? Even when I have no idea what he's doing and I can't tell why he's doing it. Believing that the resurrection is real even when you have to die, sometimes literally, in every sense of the word. That's saving faith. We're called to live this kind of a life of faith. Once Abraham's faith is proven true, uh, God reiterates his covenant promise to Abraham. And to narrow in on just one thing, God says, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's going to lead us to this second layer that I want to show you, the second gospel layer in this story. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So we've seen Abraham's testing and approval. That's taken us through the story in one way. But let's peel back another layer together. Let's look at the father's shocking generosity. If the previous layer took us to the gospel in showing us the nature of the faith that saves, this layer, uh, God's testing of Abraham and how the story unfolds in his providence, um, in this layer, God gives us a window into his own heart, a window into himself. God is showing us who he is in this layer. His shocking generosity, freely giving his own son to redeem us. John Chrysostom, the 5th century church father, he called uh, things like what we have here in this story prophecies by way of things. When you think prophecy, what do you normally think of? Words, a statement, something that was prophesied by the prophets in the past. Chrysostom called this, though, a prophecy by way of things. It's prophecy in a picture, a prophetic picture of the father's shocking generosity. It's hard not to draw the connection if you read through the story again I'll just summarize, but verse 2, verse 12, verse 16, when you put it all together, what do you get? What is God calling Abraham to give up? His only beloved son. Only beloved son. Only beloved son. It's, it, it repeats three times in this story. And just as Abraham led his only beloved son, uh, his only son, the son he loved, to Mount Moriah, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the son who he loves, put to death for you on Mount Calvary, given for you in your place. There's gospel geography in this prophetic picture. Gospel geography. It's no accident that Moriah, where this story unfolds, is roughly the location of Calvary. It's at least a stone's throw away. Picture that. Can you see it? As you see Abraham in this story, uh, leading his son, his only son, the son he loves, and you see him leading Isaac up the mountain, you're seeing the Father's shocking generosity for you, leading His only begotten Son up the mountain for you. The Father leading Jesus up that hill to die for you. Like Derek Kidner points out in Genesis 22, it was the Son who carried the wood, but it was the Father who carried the knife. To quote Luther, he said, I could not have been an onlooker much less the performer and slayer. It is an astounding situation that the dearly beloved father moves his knife close to the throat of the dearly beloved son. But that's what happened in the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. On the cross of Christ, there was no angel to hold back the father's hand. 
the eternal Father took the knife, and that knife came down in perfect, painful justice for all of our sin. For all of our sin. The sins that are laid on the shoulder of Jesus. He bore the sword of justice to the hilt for sinners like you and me, to rescue you, to redeem you. The eternal Son given for you. Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53, 7-10. The eternal Son given for you, friend. Galatians 1, 3-5. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Shocking generosity of the Father. According to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, what is that? What kind of generosity is that? Loving, sacrificial, redeeming generosity. Not just in the sacrifice of Christ, but the sacrifice of the Father giving His only beloved Son to redeem us. We often weep and wonder at the wounds of Christ. But do we remember enough the shocking generosity of God our Father? His shocking generosity to pour out His own wrath on His only beloved Son in our place. To redeem all who by faith will turn to Jesus. What kind of loves, what kind of lives of love and service would we live if we remembered the generosity of the Father? If we just couldn't shake that picture from our minds? If we always remembered what he had given for us? It makes giving up on a few dreams and wishes uh, and enduring a few hardships seem trifling, doesn't it? makes it seem like not such a big deal if we remember what God has done, our Father, what He has given in Christ, when we see Him leading His own Son up the mountain for us. That's as generous as it gets. This generosity, as we'll see next, it answers our deepest need, and it moves us to a life of faith and gratitude for God's gracious, generous provision. So, first layer, we've seen the servant's saving faith. Second layer, we've seen the Father's shocking generosity. Finally, the sinner's singular need. Is it striking as you read this story and maybe as we've gone through this sermon, we haven't talked much about Isaac yet? We haven't really even put our shoes, ourselves in Isaac's shoes yet. I mean, we, we, we talk about him in the story, but the poor kid, right? Even as you read the story, it's almost like he takes the back seat to this testing of Abraham's faith. I mean, it's his life that's on the line. It's kind of interesting when you stop and think about it. It seems a little unusual, but I think there's one crucial point where Isaac comes to the fore in this story. And it's, it's important. It's not a throwaway statement. It's so important because it shows us our need for Jesus. Isaac asks the million-dollar questions. Kids, do you remember the question I told you to listen for? Say it with me. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? 
Isaac asks, My father. And Abraham says, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You put yourself in Isaac's shoes? It's a valid question. One I'm surprised he hasn't asked until this point. But friend, have you asked that question? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? You have to ask that question. Until you ask that question, you haven't come to grips with your singular need as a sinner condemned to die under the wrath of God. Where's the lamb? Quite honestly, I don't think I understand Isaac's seeming lack of resistance. Maybe that points to his faith too. I don't know. Maybe it's another layer in this story that shows us Christ uh, silently led as a lamb to the slaughter, opening not his mouth. But what a question to ask that gets right at our need. Where's the lamb, Isaac says. What a picture of our condition in need of a substitute. Bound to the altar, no escape, no one to stand in for us, no one to stand in for Isaac. That's you and me. That's who we are. But we can go years bound without hope, condemned to die, and we ignore this singular need that we have. We don't ask the question, where's the lamb? We don't ask it because we're trying to make things better our own way. We're struggling against uh, the, the, the chains that tie us, thinking by our own self-righteousness, by maybe doing better and trying harder. We can get out of this situation. We can get out of this mess. And we never ask the question, where's the lamb? Maybe we don't even realize the danger we're in. We don't ask that question. But when we come to the end of ourselves and the end of our struggle to prove ourselves okay enough by our own good works and we realize that there is no hope for us, that we have one singular need, and that is forgiveness and grace from God, we have to ask the question. That's when we say, where is the lamb? And the story of Scripture is that there is a lamb. There is a lamb. In this story, the lamb is over there in a thicket. The thorns and brambles, and by lamb I mean the substitutionary sacrifice, this ram whose horns are caught in the thicket. Abraham's elated. He praises God. And he names the place in a way that gloriously previews something incredible to come in the history of redemption that will answer the sinner's singular need. Look with me. Look with me at verse 14. Genesis twenty-two, fourteen. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. When Abraham named that mountain, the Lord will provide, he previewed a place that would point to our substitute Jesus a thousand times over throughout the history of Israel. Year after year, many years since this harrowing experience of the Father and the Son on the mountain, do you know what it pointed to? 2 Chronicles 3.1, we read, notice the place. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. On Mount the Lord will provide. The temple, the temple where countless lambs would be killed year after year, thousands upon thousands, as a sign that sinners like you and me have one singular need. And that's a substitute. Someone to stand in our place and atone for our sins and to satisfy the wrath of God against sinners, to stand in our place for forgiveness. You have to ask the question, where's the lamb? You don't need self-righteousness. Uh, you don't need a, uh, to do better and try harder. You need a stand-in. You need a substitute. You need a sacrifice in your place. And God has provided that lamb for you. The final sacrifice, 
the only begotten Son, the Son He loves. That ram caught in the thicket, the thousands of lambs that were killed year after year, all pointing to the one of whom John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb who loved you. The Lamb who the Father, the loving, generous Father gave for you. He gave His life to ransom you so that you would live a life of saving faith, serving Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the Lamb that You provided on Mount Calvary, who lived unblemished and died the perfect sacrifice to stand in our place. We're amazed at the scene of our Father leading His own Son to death on the mountain so that we might be called children of God. Help us to consider our faith. Sometimes we stare too long at our faith and we second-guess ourselves rather than using our faith to latch on to something outside of ourselves to redeem and rescue and save us. Make us aware of where our faith is dead. If that's what we have, forgive us and save us. Father, draw us close to you. May we not have a cold and dead faith, but a live and active faith that through good works testifies to the real saving work you have done in our hearts. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen.